Nicholas Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Episode 14, 1890 in England, Billy's back. Since his last Test match, the first of the 1884-85 series, Billy Murdoch had not played any first-class cricket. He had been the key figure in the disputes between the colonial boards and the players, and the ramifications of the fallout had led him to spurn big cricket. During his years away from the game, he had got married and had moved to England for two years, engaging with his legal career. His absence from the unsuccessful 1886 tour had led to approaches from the organisers of the 1888 tour for him to participate, but he had declined. In early 1890, Murdoch returned to Australia for a visit. When he arrived, the press gave him an almighty roasting, with many still blaming him for his part in the decline of the Australian cricket fortunes. During his return, Murdoch was selected to play for New South Wales against South Australia in Sydney, his first big match in over five years. This was the first time that South Australia had played in Sydney. In 1887, the Colonial Associations had met to discuss the future of intercolonial matches. During this, the three biggest associations, Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales, had discussed the fixture of matches to ensure that each year there will be one home and one away match played between each of them. Victoria and South Australia agreed, however New South Wales didn't at the time. They initially tried to negotiate a separate agreement to only have to play Victoria home and away. However, with the Victorian Association suffering a massive loss due to Vernon's tour in 1887-88, they were unable to fund these matches. Looking to lock in more big cricket and with South Australia's approved performances built around players like George Giffen and JJ Lyons, South Australia was now an enticing prospect for New South Wales to host. New South Wales won comfortably by nine wickets after forcing the South Australians to follow on, with Murdoch captaining and scoring 13 runs in his only innings. Meanwhile, senior Australian players were in the process of organising the next Australian tour to England in 1890. Harry Boyle was a leading proponent of the tour and would act as manager. Along with Boyle, Jack Blackham and Charles Turner approached the players that they wanted to tour. They convinced Murdoch, who was already planning on heading back to England, to act as the captain on what would be his fifth and final tour of that country. George Giffen and Harry Moses were approached, but again declined, with Giffen again citing the absence of his brother from the squad as the reason behind his rejection. Alec Bannerman and George Bonner were penciled into the side, but both withdrew on the 7th of March. The selectors turned to a mixture of experience and new players to compose the tour. Harry Trott, JJ Ferris, Sammy Jones and JJ Lyons, who had all toured in 1888, accepted their tour invitations. Six new players would round out the squad. This included Hugh Trumbull, the Victorian off-spinner and brother of the 1886 tourist John, and Sid Gregory, the son of Ned and nephew of Dave, who had made his debut for New South Wales that season. Francis Walters of Victoria had played one test in 1884-85, whilst Percy Charlton and John Barrett saw the tour as much an opportunity to further their medical studies as opposed to their cricketing skills. Roland Pope, who had also played a test in 1884-85, went as manager and, as on previous tours, would act as a fill-in when required. The team was still missing a backup wicketkeeper for Blackham. Jarvis, who had often acted in this role, was not considered. The New South Wales players suggested Sydney Dean, whilst the Victorian players suggested Blackham's backup in that state, Jack Harry. At an impasse, Blackham said he had heard of a Tasmanian called Byrne who was a very efficient wicketkeeper. Based off this rumour, an invitation was sent to Ken Byrne, who had scored 99 not out two years previously against Vernon's side. Murdoch would depart Australia for England six weeks before the rest of the side with his wife. As such, he would miss the first blunder of the tour. Byrne joined the side in Adelaide. Once on board the ship, he revealed that he had never kept wicket in his life. Blackham had mistaken him for the Hobart Club player James Byrne. Despite still not having a backup wicketkeeper, the team decided to continue on with Byrne anyway. This revelation led to more savage criticism of the Australian side by the local papers. However, the Australians still had reason for optimism. The breakthrough win by McDonald's side in 1888 showed that Australia could still compete against the English on their home turf. On the bowling front, the Australians still had the star pairing of Turner and Ferris, who had been so effective on the previous tour. Added to this, they now had the addition of Hugh Trumbull, who had led the first-class averages the previous season with his fast off-spin with 29 wickets of 14, including two 10-wicket matches. 
Coupled with the improved leg breaks of Harry Trott and the right-arm fast mediums of Percy Charlton, the Australian bowling attack now had the variety and depth to challenge the English. The return of Murdoch added vast experience in English conditions and was hoped that he would be able to provide the batting lineup with some backbone that was missing from the previous tour. There were 39 matches scheduled for the tour, with 34 of these to be first-class status, including three tests. The Australians were still a massive draw, and despite what was considered an overall weak team by the local press, the counties were still lining up to play them. The Australians, especially Murdoch, who had answered from the game for six years, were astonished by the improved quality of play of the English counties. Led by Lord Harris, the English authorities had strengthened the game by paying the professionals more and reducing the social constraints between the two classes. The county championship had become such a strong competition that some players preferred to play in these matches rather than the representative ones against the Australians, while some counties, such as Yorkshire, would refuse to release their players for the tests. The English were also helping to expand the family of cricketing nations, with a tour to South Africa in 1889 including the first representative matches between those two sides, although these would not be recognised as test matches until the early 20th century, when South Africa officially joined the International Cricket Conference. Once again, the first match of the tour would be against Lord Sheffield's 11. Sheffield had put together a strong side which included 10 players of test experience, headlined by Grace, Shrewsbury, Peel, Briggs and Lohman. The Australians won the toss and chose to bat with Murdoch showing his class top scoring with 93 in innings of 191. Ferris and Turner then went to work, dismissing Sheffield's stack side for 27, of which Grace made 20. Following on, Ferris built on his five wickets in the first innings, with another seven in the second to help complete the innings victory for the tourists. They followed this up with a victory over Warwickshire by 132 runs, with Turner and Ferris bowling unchanged to take 12 and 7 wickets respectively. The Australians would win three of the next five games, including wins over Surrey and Lancashire. However, there were some warning signs in these games. The team was still relying heavily on Turner and Ferris, whilst the other bowling options barely got a look in. This had the effect of overburdening the two stars, whilst not giving the uppers the opportunity to learn how to bowl on English pitches. The batsmen were struggling, with the wet pitches, although not as bad as on the previous tour, making it difficult for batsmen raised on hard Australian wickets to adjust to different conditions. The one highlight was the fielding, with Sid Gregory, only 20 years old, winning rave reviews from Wisden for the high level of runs he saved and his rocket arm, generally a mid-off. The following 14 matches prior to the first test were a disaster for the Australians. They only won two against two of the weakest sides they played in Staffordshire and Leicestershire, both of which were minor counties. Six of the matches were losses, including shellacking by the players, losing by an innings and 263 runs. They didn't win a single game out of the nine they played in June. With such adject performances, the Australians were not expected to put up much resistance in the first test match starting at Lords on the 21st of July. This match was the first to be played with five ball overs, rather than the standard to that time of four. The Australians' poor performances had led them to approaching Sammy Woods, the all-rounder who had played in the three tests on the 1888 tour and was still in England playing for Cambridge University to appear for them. Woods declined, leaving the main 13 squad members to choose from. Jones, who had not played any of the tests on the previous tour, again missed out, falling ill on the eve of the match. Walters was also not selected. This left a side that included five Australian debutants, including Barrett, Gregory, Charlton, Byrne and Trumbull. England had originally selected Andrew Stoddart and Jimmy Briggs, however Stoddart preferred to play for Middlesex, whilst Briggs felt he had adequately recovered from a side strain. Their places were taken by Maurice Reid and Billy Barnes. They were joined by familiar faces Grace, Shrewsbury, Gunn, Walter Reid, Bulliet, Peel and Lohman, amongst others. The one English debutant was their keeper, Gregor McGregor, who had earlier that year made his rugby debut for Scotland. McGregor, who had gone to be one of the five Wisden cricketers of the year for 1890, was considered by many to be of equal skill to the Australian master Blackham. The ground had been soaked by persistent rain over the preceding couple of days, but had recovered well and would only get better as the match progressed. 
Despite the Australians' poor results to that stage, over 12,000 paying spectators turned up for the first day as Murdoch won the toss and chose to bat, with concern that rain later in the day may make the pitch worse for batting. Lyons and Turner opened just after midday, facing Loman and Peel. With the pitch at its worst, Lyons decided the best way to approach was to attack. With a bit of luck, Lyons targeted Loman, hitting for four boundaries in his opening two overs. Turner got in on the act by hitting Peel's fourth ball to the boundary, but Lyons really dominated the attack. By the time a double change was made 25 minutes into the innings, Lyons had reached 38 out of 42 scored. Adderwell and Barnes slowed the scoring somewhat, but Lyons was still able to bring up his 50 after only 35 minutes of play. To that stage, the fastest 50 scored in Test cricket. Turner was missed by a difficult chance at mid-on as the score raced to 66 before Barnes was finally able to defeat Lyons with the Yorker, dismissing the South Australian for 55. He had struck eight boundaries in only 45 minutes of batting and was warmly cheered by the English fans. Australia was in a strong position at 1 for 66 when the captain arrived at the crease for his first test innings in England since he scored 201 in 1884. He started cautiously whilst Turner took up the mantle from Lyons, hitting Barnes to 10 in one over. This led to his removal from the attack and replacement by Lohman. However, Turner's innings soon came to an end when Adderwell managed to get one through his defences to be bowled for 24. Debutant Barrett arrived to partner his captain, who cut Lohman to the boundary. However, at this point the bowling tightened, with six consecutive maidens being delivered before Adderwell struck again. Murdoch popped a ball into the onside where Adderwell ran from the bowler's end to complete a splendid catch low down. Murdoch's dismissal for nine brought Harry Trott to the crease, the current Australian captain being replaced by a future one. George Henry Stevens Trott, known as Harry, was born on the 5th of August 1866 in the Melbourne suburb of Collingwood. The third of eight children, among which included another future test cricketer in Harry's brother Albert, Harry came to prominence when he moved to the South Melbourne Cricket Club. His first season as an 18-year-old saw him top the batting and bowling averages for the competition. This form led to his debut for Victoria in the 1885-86 season. His first match against South Australia saw him score 54, including a leg-side six off George Giffen, and take seven wickets in the match. Whilst he didn't excel with the bat over the next few years, the absence of leading players and his performances in district cricket saw him selected for the 1888 tour. His bowling was expected to be his strength, but he was considered too slow by English pundits, meaning he couldn't provide the support required by Turner and Ferris. Upon his return to Australia, he scored his maiden first-class century against New South Wales in a 500-run season. Solid performances the following year saw him selected for his second English tour, where as part of an inexperienced side he was expected to help lead the way. Trot wasn't able to get going early, as the pressure from Adderwell and Lohman continued to build. Lohman bowled another six consecutive maidens, whilst Adderwell was also miserly. The Australian score, which had raced ahead at the beginning of the day, was pegged back, with 100 being raised after an hour and a half of batting. As lunch approached, Ulliot was tried in place of Lohman. This change brought about the breakthrough, with Barrett hitting a limp shot to point to be dismissed for nine. Lunch was then taken with the Australian score on four for 109. Upon resumption, new batsman Gregor was nearly dismissed straight away, but was madly missed by Grace at point. This drop cost the English little, however, as soon after Gregory was bowled by Adderwell for a duck. New batsman Charlton then had miscommunication with Trot, leading to the latter being run out for 12. The Australians were now 6 for 113, having lost three wickets for only four runs. From here, the Australian innings could never gain any stability, with no one else reaching double figures, as the Australians were soon all out for 132. McGregor showed his quality with excellent stumpings of Charlton and Byrne, whilst not letting a buy through for the whole innings. Adderwell was the star bowler, claiming four wickets, whilst Peel claimed three to finish off the Australians. The English innings commenced at 4.30, with Grace and Shrewsbury facing the familiar foes of Turner and Ferris. Off the second ball bowled, Grace tamely patted the ball back to Turner, who charged up the pitch to claim the catch. Gunn came to the crease and, following four maiden overs, managed to cut Ferris for three, then driving Turner for four. A few runs later, Shrewsbury attempted to come down the wicket to Ferris, only to miss and be expertly stumped by Blackham. 
Walter Reed joined Gunn and the two made six runs in as many overs before both fell with the score at 20, with Reed being caught in bold Ferris and Gunn being run out by a superb throw from Gregory. With the foremost highly credentialed English batsman back in the pavilion, the Australians had the opportunity to press a first innings advantage. At this point, Elliot joined Maurice Reed at the crease. The two adopted a defensive approach, with only 27 runs coming from the first hour of play. More steady play led to the score being taken to 43, upon when Trot replaced Ferris. This provided an opportunity for runs, with both batsmen taking the new bowl up for plenty, bringing up the English 50 to warm applause. Ferris was brought back, but now the pitch was much better for batting and the partnership continued to grow, passing 50. Finally, when the score reached 92, Ferris got one past Reed's bat, bowling him for 34. Elliot continued on in partnership with Peel, reaching stumps without further loss with the score on 108, with the Yorkshireman being not out on 45. More than 12,000 fans attended on the second day, with Elliot and Peel resuming their 16-run partnership. Under hot conditions, the two batsmen started cautiously. A boundary off Ferris six overs in saw Elliot raise his 50, whilst after 36 minutes of play, the English score reached parity with the Australian first innings. This brought about a change in the bowling with Trumbull coming on. With his second ball, he tempted Peel to hit a return catch, dismissing him for 14. At 6 for 133, Barnes arrived to join with Ulliot. Ulliot drove Turner for two consecutive boundaries, leading to his replacement by Lyons. This change soon brought about Ulliot's downfall, with Lyons clean bowling the auctionman for 74, made over two and a half hours with four boundaries. He was well applauded back to the pavilion. Lyons then ran through the rest of the English batting, claiming the final three wickets to end the English innings on 173, a lead of 41 runs. Lyons finished with an impressive 5 for 30 off 20 overs, upstaging his more high-profile teammates with the ball. The Australians shifted their batting order, with Barrett opening with Turner this time around. Peel and Adderwell, the opening bowlers, bowled tightly, restricting the Australians to only six runs in 10 overs. At this score, Turner was dismissed leg before to Peel for two. Trot came to the crease, but on the stroke of lunch was bowled by Peel for a duck, leaving the Australians at a precarious two for eight. Following the lunch adjournment, Lyons joined with Barrett. Shortly after, when Lyons was only on two, he was missed by Barnes at mid-on. This mistake was compounded as Lyons proceeded to hit the next ball for four. He then dominated the 40-run partnership with Barrett, being particularly harsh on Adderwell, hitting him to the colour boundary before consecutive leg-side falls in the next over. The deficit was wiped off, but Lyons was then out shortly after for 33, robbing the Australians of the momentum. Murdoch arrived and the scoring immediately slowed down, with only 10 runs coming in 12 overs. The score progressed more quickly when Lowen was brought on, although a chance for a leg-side catch by the keeper McGregor was missed off Murdoch when he was on 14. The Australian captain couldn't capitalise, however, falling to the same bowler five runs later. Gregory joined Barrett, who had made his way to 29 at 4 for 84, a lead for 43 runs. Barrett then sent Adderwell to the boundary twice, leading to his replacement by Grace. The score progressed beyond 100 before Gregory was dismissed, caught off Barnes for 9. Charlton then fell cheaply to Grace's leg before, leaving the Australians only four wickets in hand. Blackham hit a quick-fire 10 before giving Grace his second wicket. Barrett had been scoreless for over 55 minutes at this point, but the arrival of Ferris saw his scoring resume, whilst Ferris hit Grace for four behind point. Barrett brought up his 50 to warm applause before Ferris was trapped LBW, a decision he allowed that he disputed. Trumbull was soon after dismissed for five. This left the Australians at 9 for 142, with a lead of just over 100 runs. However, last man Byrne joined with Barrett to see the Australians through to stumps without further loss and the addition of a valuable 26 runs. The final Australian pair continued their resistance for 35 minutes on the third day, adding eight runs in the process, before Byrne was caught behind off Adderwell for 19. This left Barrett 67 not out, becoming the first player in Test cricket to carry their bat through a completed innings. He batted for over four hours and hit eight boundaries. This had given the Australians a lead of 135 runs going into the final innings. The conditions were still good, but early wickets could give the Australians a chance to pull off an upset win.
England, however, still had a mighty batting lineup, opening with arguably the two best batsmen in the world in Grace and Shrewsby. Lions, so successful in the first innings, opened with Turner. The pitch, whilst dusty, was still a good one for batting, but the two Australian bowlers had the English openers playing anxiously. Grace, who had never before made a pair, was particularly cautious, taking till the fifth over to open his account with a single to the leg side. From this point on, the doctor began to settle, with runs flowing more freely. At 20, Turner was replaced by Ferris. Grace immediately cut him for four, but in the left arm as next over, he managed to trap Shrewsby LBW for 13. Gunn came in at number three as Grace continued to accelerate, hitting multiple boundaries and helping bring up the 50 runs after only an hour of play. At this point, the scoring slowed, with Turner and Ferris bowling seven consecutive maidens. However, no bowler could make a breakthrough, with Grace and Gunn surviving to lunch on one for 66, almost halfway to the total. Following the break, Grace hit Ferris for a boundary, whilst Gunn took Turner for seven runs in an over. Grace should have been out soon after for 44, with Ferris dropping a low chance at mid-off off Turner. Grace compounded this drop by hitting the next ball for three. This was probably the last opportunity for the Australians to have any chance of changing the directory of the match. Grace brought up his 50, whilst the team 100 followed soon after. Ferris struck almost immediately following the raising of the century, having Gunn lamely spoon a catch back to the bowler to be out for 34. His 74-run partnership with Grace had seared the England to the brink of victory, however. With victory so close, Grace and the new batsman Walter Reed played with freedom. Grace cut Turner for consecutive boundaries, whilst Reed also batted quickly, before he was bowled by Trumbull with a score on 135, one short of victory. Reed's namesake Maurice finished the job soon after, leading to a comfortable victory by seven wickets. Grace finished on 75 not out with nine boundaries, a marked improvement on his first innings effort and giving England a 1-0 lead in the series. This test match was the final played by George Ulliott for England, who had played in the first ever test match. He was the last player from that match still playing in tests for England. The only Australian left from that side was Blackham, who still had many years of cricket ahead of him. Ulliott had been on 5 tours Australia and was a big favourite, falling just short of 1,000 test runs to go with his 50 wickets. The Australians had some success in the following two matches, including an innings victory over Sussex, where Murdoch displayed his class by scoring 158. Murdoch turned up again in the match against Cambridge University, where he shared a 276-run partnership with Harry Trott, who also scored 186, what would be the highest score by an Australian on the tour. The Australians also showed they had learned something from the previous tour, resting Turner and Ferris in two of the five matches between the first and second test, the latter of which would be played at the Oval in mid-August. The Australians would go into the match with the same 11 as the previous test. The English made three changes, although they were not at full strength. Ulliott, Peel and Stoddart were all retained by the counties rather than being released for the test. In addition, Briggs was still suffering from his side strain whilst Adderwell suffered a similar injury. The vacated places were taken by three debutants, left-handed batsman James Cranston, right-arm medium bowler John Sharp and left-armer Frederick Nutty Martin. Murdoch was again successful in winning the toss and chose to bat. Much rain had fallen prior to the match and the pitch would be at its best for batting before it started to dry out. Opening with Lyons and Turner, the Australians started strongly, negating the early efforts of Lohman and Martin. Lyons dominated the scoring, but fell for an unlucky 13, giving Martin his first test wicket. Murdoch joined Turner, and the two took the score on to 27 before Turner fell for 12. This brought about a collapse, with the following three wickets falling for 12 runs, including Murdoch. This left the Australians at 5 for 39 after an hour's play. Blackham followed soon after becoming Martin's fourth victim. Trot, who had come in at the fall of the third wicket, now partnered Ferris, and the two managed to take the score on to 70. At this point, Martin was replaced by Sharp, who brought about the breakthrough by having Ferris caught by Loman for six. Lunch was then taken with the Australians having only three wickets in hand. Following the resumption, Trot continued to accumulate runs, looking relatively untroubled. However, he was then out in an unfortunate way, edging a ball onto his pad, which then ran up his arm to be caught by the keeper. He had made 39, by far the top score of the innings, which soon after wrapped up, with the final two wickets falling on 92. Martin had finished with six wickets on debut, whilst Lohman had three. 
The English opened with the familiar pairing of Shrewsbury and Grace, whilst the Australians began with Turner and Ferris. The first ball Ferris bowled managed to catch the edge of Grace's bat, having caught it slip by Trumbull for a golden duck. Gunn joined Shrewsbury and the two played slowly, only reaching double figures after half an hour of careful batting. At this point, a display of fielding excellence from Trot saw Shrewsbury caught a point off Turner for four. Walter Reed followed soon after for a solitary run, another victim of Turner. This left the English a precarious three for 16. Cranston joined with Gunn and received an early reprieve, with the catch off the new batsman going through the hands of Trumbull when he was only on two. The two batsmen then looked to settle the English nerves, building a solid partnership that took the English score past 50. At 55, Cranston called for a run, but a brilliant throw from Gregory caught him short of his crease. Maurice Reed replaced him, whilst Gunn continued to abat with assuredness. The two took the English score onto the 70s, and looked set to provide them with a substantial lead. However, at 79, Gunn tried for a big shot, only to be bowled by Ferris. Reed became 6-4, becoming Charlton's first wicket with a score at 90. At this point, the English lost their final four wickets for only 10 more runs, with Ferris and Charlton taking two apiece. This left the English a slender lead of only eight runs. Ferris had ended the innings with the best figures, finishing with four for 25 off 25 overs. 20 wickets had already fallen on the day's play, but there were still 15 minutes left for the Australians' second innings to commence. They lost two wickets in that time for five runs, with Barrett and Ferris the unfortunate victims. Bell was left not out as the Australians still trailed by three runs going into day two. Lyons joined with Byrne to start the second day, with the two scoring freely, erasing the deficit, with Lyons particularly playing well. The two raises scored a 36, where Martin got one past Lyons' freewheeling blade to bowling for 21. This dismissal brought about a collapse, with the next four wickets falling for only 18 runs, Murdoch, Turner and Blackham all failing to reach double figures, with Martin completing his 10 wickets on debut by bowling Turner for a duck. Trot, once again, was holding the innings together. He found a willing partner in Charlton, and the two managed to progress the score onto 90 before they were separated within two runs of each other. The final wicket pairing managed to take the score past 100 before Martin claimed his sixth wicket to finish with an incredible 12 for the match. The first person to complete a 10-wicket haul on their debut, whilst Lohman also claimed another three. Trot had once again top score for the Australians with 25, but the inability to form consistent partnerships had only left the English chasing a comfortable 95 for victory. Grace and Shrewsbury opened again for England. The English captain was nearly out first ball, but Trot uncharacteristically dropped the chance at point off Turner. This missed opportunity seemed to have cost the Australians any chance of victory, as the two batsmen compiled a solid partnership, making their way to a quarter of the runs required. At 24, Grace fell, with Trumbull making no mistake to the catch-off Ferris. This broke open the floodgates. Shrewsbury was trapped LBW to the same bowler a run later. Gunn attempted to attack Ferris, but the left armour spun the ball past his outside edge for Blackham to complete a smart stumping. Turner got in on the act by bowling Walter Reed. This left the English at a precarious 4 for 32, with the terror and the fiend on the rampage. At this point, Cranston joined with Maurice Reed. The two steadied the English innings, taking the score past 50 and giving the English the ascendancy again. Reed in particular played with confident power. He gave one opportunity to Murdoch at mid-on with a score on 63, but the Australian captain was unable to complete the catch. The two batsmen continued on, bringing up a 50 partnership and taking the English to within 12 runs of victory before Reed tried one big hit too many, holding out to Barrett off the bowling of Turner for a well-compiled 35. The fall of this wicket turned the match again. Cranston fell immediately after to the same bowler without a run added. Loman could only add two before becoming another Ferris victim, whilst Barnes also fell to the Fiend, giving him his fifth wicket for the innings. The English score had been taken to 93, just too short of victory when the eighth wicket fell, but the home fans were not confident, with the memories of the 1882 match coming to mind for many a supporter. On the final ball of the 51st over, Sharp nicked a ball to point and took off for the match-tying run. Barrett, sensing an opportunity, gathered the ball quickly, but was unsure at what end to throw it, as both were run-out options. In the end, he chose neither, sending the ball through the middle of the pitch and into the leg side, allowing the English batting pair to scamper back for the winning run, completing an exciting victory by two wickets. 
The 10,000 strong crowd roared their approval, massing in front of the pavilion to applaud their heroes. The English had achieved another series victory, their eighth on the trot against the Australians. The Australians had performed better than expected in this latest match and still had the opportunity to salvage some pride in the third and final test, which was to take place in Manchester at the end of August. The Australians head into that match off the back of an eight-wicket win against WG Grace's Gloucestershire, which included ten wickets to Ferris, so were feeling somewhat confident about their chances. The weather had other ideas, however. The rain washed out the whole of the first day, so much so that the toss could not be made. Rain fell again on the second morning, but stopped around midday. A pitch was marked and play intended to commence at 3pm, but another thunderstorm hit the ground at 2, meaning play was once again abandoned. The two sides agreed on the third day that with the amount of rain that had fallen, it was not possible to commence play, leading to the first abandoned test match, and meaning that the test series would finish at 2-0 in England's favour. The rest of the tour played out, the Australians winning two and losing two of the remaining six matches. Whilst remaining as somewhat of a draw card, the improved county championship was drawing large crowds, so much so that the teams were often withholding their players from England duty. The Australians were not as successful as previous teams on the field, winning only 13 of the 38 matches on tour. The slightly drier conditions in 1888 had led to more consistent batting, with four players scoring over 1,000 runs on the tour. Murdoch led the way with 1,394, whilst Trot came of age with 1,211, including the top score of 186. For the bowlers, Turner didn't quite reach the same amazing heights as 1888, but still took 179 wickets at 14. Ferris, however, enhanced his already high reputation, leading the wicket-takers with 186 at 14, with his superior bowling on harder pitches being the standout. Turner and Ferris benefited from more bowling support this time, with Trumbull, Lyons and Charlton all taking over 40 wickets. As the Australians departed, they left behind some of their number in the mother country. Barrett and Charlton, who both played their only two tests on this tour, remained in the country to continue their medical studies, although both would eventually return to Australia to play for their colonies again. The tourists would also be departing without their captain and best bowler, with Murdoch and Ferris both deciding to settle in England. Both would play for local county sides, Murdoch with Sussex and Ferris with Gloucestershire. They continued to perform well and were convinced to join an English side headed to South Africa for the 1891-92 Southern Summer. There, they would participate in what was to become South Africa's third ever test match, becoming the second and third players to represent two test nations after Billy Midwinter. Ferris starred, taking 13 wickets in an innings victory for the English, whilst Murdoch made 12 batting at three. This match was the last test for both of these great Australian players. Ferris would eventually return to Australia, where he played one game for South Australia and two for New South Wales. Upon the outbreak of the Boer War, Ferris enlisted. For some unknown reason, he received a dishonourable discharge and died shortly thereafter. Some reports claimed typhoid, whilst others said he had a seizure on a tram. He was only 33 and had taken 61 wickets in only nine test matches. Murdoch stayed in England till past the turn of the century. He played for Sussex for six years before joining his great friend W.G. Grace at the newly established London County side, where he played for another four years. His dispute with the colonial boards had cost the Australians almost six years of his batting talents when he would have been at the peak of his powers. He was still in his test career with only 900 runs at just over 30. Excellent figures for the time. Returning to Australia for a visit, he was present at a test in Melbourne between Australia and South Africa in 1911 when he suffered a stroke and died, aged 56. The final act of Murdoch's Australian test career was not a fitting one for someone who had been a colossus of the Australian game. Reports of drunken brawls by the team he led filled the pages of the colonial news. It would also be the last of the biennial English tours, with three years passing before the next side left for England. However, as one great departed the stage, another was preparing to return to Australia for the first time in nearly 18 years. W.G. Grace had been convinced to make his second tour down under. The excitement of this event would see a restoration in public interest and coincide with the revitalisation of Australian cricket. 
Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.